All right, 1 John chapter 5, and I titled this Overcoming the World. I'm real hit and miss with my title, so I did title this one Overcoming the World. Uh, church administrator slash my wife yells at me because I don't have titles. So I got a title today, Overcoming the World, and she doesn't have to go look for one. John, as we go through this, John wraps up this letter with an overview of his points that he made throughout this letter. And so I did, by request, if you look on the back of your bulletin, there are all the points that we have made as we went through 1 John, right? And you can thank my mom for that because she said I talked too fast and she couldn't write them down. So there are all the points from the book of 1 John written out there for you if you want to check those out. Anyway, John wraps up this letter. Um, He kind of condenses all the points that he's made through this letter. And remember, as we get started in this, this morning he's writing to a church or a church of Christians dealing, and what they're dealing with is fakes in the church. Uh, False prophets, false teachers that are going out from the church. He calls them antichrists. And he says the spirit of Antichrist is there, and it's out there everywhere. It's in the world. And so being a Christian is not an easy thing. And what happens is people start twisting what it means to be a Christian and telling lies about Jesus. That's what these Antichrists, these false prophets are doing. And it can start wearing on Christians, It can start raising doubts. It can start raising questions within us when we hear these things that we know there are not true about Jesus, but yet the world continues to push these ideas. We know what's right. But it can start wearing on us, start raising questions, start uh, casting doubt. And then you might ask the question, how do I know I'm a Christian? How do I know I'm saved? Well, that's what John was here to tell us, right? And that's what those 13 points are. John is not trying in this letter to cause doubt. He is not trying to cause us to doubt our Christianity. What he's trying to do is encourage us in our Christianity. And so John wants to give these Christians confidence in who they are as children of God and as believers in Christ. And so we made that list. We went through that list that came out of this letter. And at the beginning, number one, John tells us that it all starts with Jesus. The first point that John makes is who is Jesus? He says back there, that which was from the beginning, beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus there. So John starts his letter with Jesus and guess what? He's gonna end it with Jesus. And so we are in chapter 5, and I will read chapter 5 for you if you want to follow along in your Bible, and then we'll look and see what the Bible has to say. 1 John chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. 
This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He, does not, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he, will hear, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I am not, I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We, also, we know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Okay. Back up to the verse 1 there of chapter 5. And we have already said that, that John here is giving confidence in who these people are. And by in turn, who we are. We're Christians. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are born of God. And it doesn't matter what's going on around you, what the world's saying around you. It's, that's the truth. If you love God the Father, you love the Son. You cannot separate those two things. And a few more verses here, or as we go through, we've already read it. John brings up the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. One God, three equally divine persons, uh, as our EFCA statement of faith says. And so if you love one, you love them all. If you love the Father, you have to love the Son. Once again, you cannot separate that. And so in verse 2, John continues on, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. If you want to know how to love another Christian, you love God. You love his commands. And so it forces us to love one another. When we love God and we love his commands, now it will force us to love one another, right? Sometimes we struggle with that. We struggle with loving each other. We get on each other's nerves, whatever. If you love the Father, you love the Son. If you love God you'll love your neighbor. You'll love your fellow Christian. And so you'll follow the commands. You see how it all ties together. And so John says, this is how we know we love the children of God because we love God. They all go together. <clears throat> now, as we've went through this series, 
we have defined what a Christian is and what a Christian is not, what the church is and what the church is not, what sin is. And here, John keeps bringing this up about love. Here I want to define what love is. Love is something that comes from God. Love cares for the well-being of others. Love is self-sacrifice for others. Love is devotion to God. Love is devotion to Jesus Christ. And if you want to see an example of that, love, or you look to Jesus. That's the example. That's the benchmark. When we talk about love, it's, it, it's all encompassed in Jesus. Back in John, uh, the book of John, the gospel of John 15, verses 9 through 17, it says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Right? That's what John was just telling us. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love hath no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command that you love each other. That's Jesus talking. Where was Jesus headed? He's headed to the cross, right? Why is he headed to the cross? To pay for our sins. What's he say there? Greater love hath no man than this, that you lay down your life. Guess what? He was laying down his life for our life, right? That's love. That's the goal. That's who we look to when we talk about love. Love is commitment. And with that love, what did he tell his disciples? Comes joy. The joy is complete. And so when we define love, and we say what love is not, love is not a happy or giddy feeling. Love is not following our heart. Love is not glossing over sin or accepting sin. Actually, that's the opposite of love. Because sin is rebellion. Sin is lawlessness against God and his commands, and that's definitely not love. And so don't use the world's definition of love. Because you never know where that's going to lead you or what path you may end up on. Use God's definition of love. Look to God because he is love. And so, do you want to love God? Well, what do you do? You obey his commands. What was the command that Jesus gave us? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says there in verse 3, This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. So, we can make a burden. Love is not burdensome. Jesus says, follow my commands. They're not not a burden. But we can make it burdensome, right? Because we are selfish, And so when we act 
We can act out of selfishness and then love becomes a burden. That's not how it's supposed to be. Remember that human nature is still in us. But who are we? We're children of God. We love him, he loves us. And so love is not a burden and we shouldn't make it a burden. Uh, verses three and four are, are one sentence. He keeps going uh, <clears throat> at the the break there in verse 3 to go to verse 4, you see it's a comma. So the thought continues, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. This is the victory. As children of God, we have victory over this world. But it's not for everybody. Only he who believes, in G- believes that Jesus is the Son of God receives that victory over the world. And so, who overcomes the world? Christians overcome the world. And it's through Jesus. Jesus is the one that did that, that offers that salvation. Now, verses 6 through 12, John, once again, is going to tell us who Jesus is. This is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and there are three in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given us about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made does not believe has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life and he who does not have the son of God does not have life. Okay. John started this gospel or this book of 1 John, this letter of 1 John talking about Jesus. And once again, He's going to tell us about who Jesus is. Now, as you read uh, verses 6, 7 there, um, there's some different ideas about the water and the blood. Uh, You may have heard people talking about this or or different theologians theologizing about this, and especially the water. Some say that water, when you see the water and blood, some say that water is his baptism. Some say that he came by water and spirit. Some say that's his birth. I think the point John is trying to make here, it doesn't matter which one of those things that you think, I think the point John is trying to make here is the same point that he made in John, 1 John 1 through 3. Jesus was here. He came to earth. So don't get hung up on, on the wording there, trying to figure out necessarily what that means. He's trying to make the point that Jesus was here. He, the Son of God, come from heaven to earth, and he's real. And he was here on earth, and, and you know, just don't take John's word for it. John was a disciple. You could take his word for it. But jo- just don't take John's word for it, because what does he say here? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. God himself testifies that Jesus Christ came to this earth. God the Spirit in particular. 
And it does kind of remind us of Jesus' baptism, doesn't it? If you think back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have that story about the Spirit of God at Jesus' baptism coming and landing on Jesus. And so you do get that idea of baptism here a little bit. But like I said, the point John's trying to make here, Jesus came to earth, and not just John and the disciples, but the Spirit testifies to it. In verse 9, he says, we accept man's testimony, his testimony, the disciples' testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. Now, there were lots of people who saw Jesus after his resurrection. The disciples saw him. Paul, in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 6, says 500 plus saw Jesus after his resurrection. That's pretty good testimony. If you were at a trial and you had 500 witnesses saying the same thing, is that good testimony? That's pretty good testimony. You have a good case. And John says, that's good. That's good, right? We accept a man's testimony. It's good. But guess what? There's something more important is God's testimony. The Holy Spirit says who Jesus is. And God's testimony is worth way more than, a, than man's testimony. And so the Holy Spirit is going to tell us who Jesus is. He says, in, John says in verse 10, he says, anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. God the Spirit then puts that testimony in our heart. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I hope so. Why is that in your heart? Because the Holy Spirit put it there. The God is a testimony to himself. We can hear it, right? We could have met these 500 witnesses. We could have met the disciples, but it's the Holy Spirit who is the final say and puts that in our hearts that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is who he said he was. And so it's God the Spirit that puts that testimony in the believer's heart, that Jesus is the Son of God, and it's the Spirit then that convicts of sin and points to Jesus as the Savior from sin. If you don't believe God, the Spirit, who are you going to believe? If you don't believe what God says, who are you going to believe? And guess what? John goes on here. He says, anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. You don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If we don't believe that, if people don't believe that, they're calling God himself a liar because he testifies about himself. And so what does that boil down to? Verse 11, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So what is God's testimony? What is God the Spirit's testimony? Christians, believers in, here it is. Christians, believers in Jesus Christ have eternal life and life in his Son. 
The Holy Spirit testifies to that, testifies to us to that. And so what happens is, if you don't believe that, no belief equals no life. You have no eternal life if you don't believe what God the Father, what God the Spirit says. If you believe it, if you, if you listen to the Holy Spirit, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, as he testifies, that belief then equals eternal life. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so then we roll into verses 13 through 15. It says, I write these things to you who believe. Remember, and we said way back, the belief is already. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. There it is. That's this confidence. This is the confidence. There he says it in verse 14. We have an approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. And so we've been saying this whole series that this letter was written for believers. And it was written for their confidence in the face of heresy, in the face of false teaching. And so here it is, verse 13. Their belief is already. Verse 14, the confidence in coming to God and asking what we need. If we believe we're children of God, that makes God our Father, right? You can have confidence in going to Him for what we need. That's what good fathers do. And so we can have this confidence because we believe in the Son of God, And now we have confidence in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We can have the confidence that God hears us, God hears his children, and Christians are children of God, and he will give us what we need. Now, one little thing there, notice what it says. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, his will. It's not our will, it's his will. And he then knows what's best for us and will give us what we need. And so as John continues, we kind of get into this, uh, let me just read them to you, verses 16 uh, and 17. It says, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, these are some hard-to-understand passages, at least for me. Um, It seems so for other people, too, because you can read lots of commentaries, and lots of people have lots of different thoughts about these verses. Um, But I'll give you mine. It's all the best I can do, right? So my logic may be wrong, so forgive me for that. But... uh, You'll have to go study it for yourself and pray about it and see what you think, but I'm going to give you my best shot at verses 16 and 17. How about that? So, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. Okay. 
We have said as Christians that we sin. I think that's a true statement. I have sinned. As a Christian, I have sinned. Now, this isn't the first time this has been talked about. In chapter 2, verse 1, John also acknowledges this. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Okay, so John says, as Christians, we can sin. Um, if you go to Matthew eighteen fifteen, Jesus speaks about a sinning brother. Paul speaks about sinning, uh, Christian sinning in, in First and Second Corinthians, and I'm sure other places. And yet, John, in chapter three of First John, verses nine and ten, says, "No one who is born of God will continue to sin." Because God's seed remains in him, he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know we are, who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. How can this be? John just said, we sin. Paul says we sin. Jesus says, talks about a sinning brother. It's obvious that we sin. Then John says in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, that we don't continue to sin. How does that work? Well, let's talk about that. Jesus' work on the cross. How many times did Jesus go to the cross? Once. One time. Jesus' work on the cross is finished. It's done. The sin of the believer has been paid for. So in terms of the penalty of sin, death, eternal death, so in terms of that penalty, that's finished. We are without sin through Christ because his work on the cross. And so when God looks at us through the blood of Jesus, he sees no sin. Back in Philippians, Paul talks about this. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 12. Listen real carefully to what Paul says. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found to him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and his power and the power, excuse me, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like, like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this. Or have already been made perfect. Pay attention to that. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have been taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We're not 
perfect yet, we still sin. And so in the church, you hear these, you hear these words called justification and sanctification. So yes, we are without sin through the blood of Jesus, but yes, we still need to continue to grow. So justification is being free from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is being free from the power of sin. Does that make sense to you? So justification happened at the cross. The, the power of sin is broken. We don't have to pay for our sins any longer. It's done. The penalty of sin is gone. Sanctification is being free from the power of sin. And so now in our lives through the Holy Spirit, we talked about this the other week, we can differentiate what's right and wrong. And so yes, we still sin. We're not, we're not there yet. Paul says that. He's pressing on towards the prize. We are not sinless yet. We are not holy yet. We don't get reach that until we come face to face with Jesus Christ. And so sanctification is, is being less like the world and more like Christ. It's a process of being purified, being made holy. And so when you, when you read these verses, and, and he talks about, you know, a sin that does not lead to death and we should pray, think about these two things. Justification, my sins are paid for at the cross, done. And sanctification, yes, I still sin, but I press on towards the prize. I try to be holy as Jesus is holy. And so think about that in your mind as you read these verses, and maybe it'll help, help us to understand. Back to verses, uh, that was kind of a little sidetrack there. Back to verses 16 and 17. So think about this as, as those things as we read this again. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. So as we went through this, this letter of John, he makes contrasts. And so I think this is another contrast. John is making a contrast between the brothers and sisters in Christ and the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ pray for each other. They pray for growth. They pray for well-being. If we see a brother or sister fall into sin, we need to pray for them. We need to lift them up in prayer. We need to forgive. We need to ask forgiveness. Right? Our sins are paid. And so our sins do not lead to death as a Christian. But we need to grow. We need to become more holy. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, back in Matthew, chapter 6, verses 9 through 14. The disciples asked Jesus how they should pray. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Right? John just talked about that. Ask for our needs. Look at verse, or think about this. You know this, uh, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so when I read these verses, and as I thought about these verses, that's a contrast. As Christians, our sin is forgiven, our, we forgive others. 
our sin does not lead unto death because we are saved to eternal life. Now, the contrast is there is the world. It says, the second half of verse 16, I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is, a, and there is sin that does not lead to death. So we believe that Jesus paid for our sin. We have life. What's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is the world, Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, everything that is against God and Jesus. Where does this world's sin lead? To death, to hell, to eternal death. That's where the sin of this world leads. It's punishment and death. There is no forgiveness. So people who refuse Christ and dismiss the conviction of the Holy Spirit are lost. They have no hope. They have no eternal life. That's the sin that leads to death. In Matthew uh, chapter 12, once again, Jesus talking. He says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, neither in this age or the age to come. What's the Holy Spirit's work? To convict people of sin. When you push away the Holy Spirit, when you deny that conviction, when you deny the Holy Spirit, when you deny Christ, there's no forgiveness for that. And so John says these people are actively, actively, vehemently rejecting God. They're rejecting the Holy Spirit. And we cannot pray for forgiveness of that. If you reject being saved, you can't be saved. Right? If, I'm, if you're drowning and I reach out my hand to you and you refuse my hand and you drown, I cannot save you. Right? And so this offer is here. If you reject being saved, you can't be saved. If you reject the forgiveness, you can't be forgiven. And so the Holy Spirit there is convicting folks of this sin. And these ones John are talking about, these antichrists, these false prophets, they're denying it. They're pushing God away. And so there is a sin that leads to death. And that sin is rejecting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's refusing God. It's pushing him away. It's not taking his forgiveness that was paid for through his son. And so the, the difference is between these two groups, they're very different people. There's one group then who knows who Jesus is and one group who needs Jesus but rejects the Spirit. And so, John, as he talks to these folks who are Christians, he admits, he acknowledges that we're going to sin, but that sin's not unto death because ours has been paid at the cross. But guess what? There's this sin out there, this rejection of the Holy Spirit that's unforgivable. You've turned a blind eye to what Jesus did on the cross. 
and there's no forgiveness for that. And so they need Jesus, but they refuse and reject the Spirit. And so as I read those verses, and like I said, you can go home and read them, study up on them. That's what I get out of that. That there's this very black and white difference between the sin of a Christian and the sin of the world, the sin of an unsaved person. Because ours are paid. And so John, he, he kind of says there in verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin. He, he just wants to be clear, right? Just because we're a Christian doesn't mean we go out and sin because it's paid for. He says all wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. And so we just need to understand about our position in Christ Jesus. That when God looks at us as saved people, he doesn't see our sin anymore. That's not to say we still don't sin, right? Sanctification, justification. Justification says those sins are paid for. Sanctification says in this world, we need to grow to be more like Christ. Okay, so I hope I didn't confuse you there. Um, but I just wanted to try to clear that up. Those are tough verses. People, like I said, people are all over a place on those. But sin is sin. And so remember... We know we are Christians because we recognize and are convicted of our sins. We confess our sins and we believe that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive those sins. Look at verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him, sa- keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. We are children of God. God has a hold on us. And so in verses 19 through 20 here, I'm just going to read these to you. And listen to what John has to say. He says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Do you see that? Do you see that when you walk outside? Do you see that on the news? Do you see that at your work? We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. That's Christians. The one who was born of God keeps him safe. We are children of God. And the evil one, whatever else is outside in this world, cannot harm a child of God. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Number one point got to believe in Jesus. And then he ends in verse 21. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Think he had another thought that he was going to go down, but he he decides to end it there. And so that's the end of 1 John chapter 5, or the end of 1 John. I hope it helps you. I hope that as you think about who Jesus is, you give it a long, hard think that you, you are sensitive to the Holy Spirit's work in your life, what's right and what's wrong. Because John didn't write, once again, John didn't write that letter to, to dismiss us or discourage us. He wrote it to encourage us as children of God.